Listener Production. I spoke to Dr. Joe Dispenza a year ago and I left wanting to ask him so much more. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with him again and this time we dive a lot deeper. Dr. Joe Dispenza is one of the world's leading experts in the fields of neuroscience and epigenetics. He is driven by the conviction that each of us has the potential for greatness and unlimited abilities. In 1986, Dr. Joe was run over by an SUV whilst competing in a triathlon. He broke six vertebrae in his thoracic and lumbar spine. Deciding against medical treatment, he used his understanding of the body's innate intelligence to heal himself through thought alone. In nine and a half weeks after the accident, he was pain-free. He has now dedicated his life's work to teaching people how they can do the same. In this intimate conversation, we talk about breaking away from your past to unlock your full potential, raising emotionally balanced kids, and how a shift in your thinking and the way you view yourself can change your life. So the first process of change is becoming conscious of your unconscious thoughts, noticing your automatic habits and behaviors, observing the emotions that you feel and say, oh my God, I've been living in guilt. I didn't know it was guilt. It's just how I normally feel. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Dr. Joe Dispenza is an acclaimed New York Times bestselling author. Some of his books include Becoming Supernatural, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, and You Are the Placebo. Dr. Joe is a doctor, scientist, and a modern-day mystic. In 2019, I attended one of his seven-day advanced workshops on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. I spoke to him shortly after that. Dr. Joe, a line that you often say is, for some of us to wake up, we need a wake-up call. Why do you believe that that is the case? Well, I think that many times uh, we need crisis or trauma or disease or diagnosis, some type of loss. Now, this to me is really the old model of change and transformation. And if your personality creates your personal reality and your personality is made up of how you think, how you act and how you feel, then if we keep thinking the same way, we keep acting the same way, we keep feeling the same way, our brain and body becomes very status quo. We start firing, wiring the same circuits and we begin to create automatic programs that become hardwired. By the same means, our emotional reactions are always conditioning our body over and over again. So in a sense, when we reach a point in our life where we no longer feel like ourselves and we're not interested in responding to people's calls or their texts, we're not interested in going out to dinner, doing the social things we typically do, we start kind of going within. And, and because we're feeling differently than we normally do, we can see ourselves for the first time through the eyes of someone else. And we can pay attention to those unconscious thoughts, those automatic behaviors and habits and emotions that, they, that we live by on a daily basis. And that, that concept in neuroscience is called metacognition. So it begs the question, who's doing the observing of our thoughts? And that's consciousness. You talk about unconscious thoughts. What are those? Well, as long as you're staying in the familiar territory of your own biology, if, you're, if everything is status quo, then the programs really are never really threatened because we run programs to stay in the familiar, stay in the known. And when we get uncomfortable or we, we react to something or someone, 
the alteration in our state emotionally begins to cause us to feel uncomfortable. So the solution in that discomfort is the unpredictable moment is not being able to control an outcome, the perception that things are getting worse. And so what people typically do is they throw in an automatic program to do something that they know how to do. And they like do it what, you, what would an automatic program be? All right. So someone says, I want to, uh, I, I want to make changes uh, to myself. I have a health condition and I realize that it's taken me 20 years to create this. So now I want to uncreate it, which is, a, you know, a common thing. So the moment they say, I'm not going to complain or blame or make excuses or feel sorry for myself. Now I understand that those thoughts make certain chemicals that feed my body certain emotions, that that thought combined with the emotion is the conditioning process. So they stop that. And when they do, uh, anytime you begin to make a change, the hardest part about change is not making the same choice as you did the day before. And that moment is discomfort. It's the unknown. It's mm. uncertainty. So, so we have two solutions. You know, uh, The moment you step uh, out into the unknown there, the body, which has been conditioned into the past, uh, that has become the mind really, because it's been, it's been conditioned over and over again to fear or anger or frustration or unworthiness. The moment you step out uh, of the familiar, the body starts influencing the mind. So you start hearing this voice in your head, the chatter, the sub-vocalizations, you can, it's too hard, you'll never change, you can start tomorrow. Well, you declared that two hours earlier, four hours earlier, you were going to make that change. And all of a sudden now, in a sense, the battle begins. So when we become aware that that discomfort is leaving the familiar territory of the known and we're stepping into the unknown and we understand that really is the perfect place to create from. So then the programs of habit, the programs of thought, the programs of emotional reactions become heightened because the body does, can't, can't predict the next moment and it's been conditioned to the past. So the, the litany of different voices, the different chatter, the different behaviors comes up and that's how you know uh, you're beginning the process of change. Why do you think it's so hard for people to step into the unknown? Why do we always go back to our old habits and do the things that we've always done? Yeah, I mean, listen... Um, it's always really great philosophy to talk about this, uh, but you know, I think this is a time in history where it's not enough to know. I think this is a time in history to know how. And so when most people live 70% of the time uh, by the hormones of stress, and stress is when your brain and body are knocked out of balance, and the stress response is what the body innately does to return itself back to balance. So if you keep living, which is 70% of the time for most people in that state of stress, in stress or in survival, the unknown, you always run from the unknown because uh, what actually creates the stress reaction is not being able to predict or control. So you know, the moment the person's no longer in the known, uh, the survival gene switches on and says, get back to safety, get back to familiar territory. There's, and, and better chances of uh, uh, running from the unknown than fully embracing the adventure. So um, most people then, they don't know that they can create a new future because the best way to predict your future then in a sense is to create it. And so that's where, that's where the interest for me becomes because you can learn and change in that state of crisis or, or suffering, or you can learn and change in a state of joy and inspiration. So when you start being defined by a vision of the future instead of the old memories and circuitries and known uh, conditions of the past, then all of a sudden uh, we combine a clear intention, a, an idea of the future, and that, that the emotion that's associated with it is an elevated emotion, like gratitude or joy, or the freedom of expression or um, a love for life. And, and in a sense then, when you elevate your emotional state and you're finishing a meditation every day and you're, you're moving into a new state of being from an elevated state instead of a state where you are locked 
knocked to the lowest denominator. Now you can see the old self as well, but instead of seeing it from a limited state, you can see it from the unlimited state. And so we're teaching people how to redefine the process of change without crisis or a wake-up call. How do you create from the unknown, like you spoke about it just briefly then, but how does one actually via meditation do that? Well, the word meditation literally means to become familiar with. That's what that symbol represents, familiarization. So so the first process of change is becoming conscious of your unconscious thoughts, noticing your automatic habits and behaviors, observing the emotions that you feel and say, my God, I've been living in guilt. I didn't know it was guilt. It's just how I normally feel. And so as you're sitting in a meditation and you're not distracted by anything in your environment, your body's not tasting, it's not smelling, it's not feeling, it's not seeing, it's not hearing. And you're really working on being defined by thought alone. You're not running into, into the predictable future or, or living in the familiar past emotionally. You're, you're working for that present moment. And so as you begin the process of change, the programs come up, as I said. So to become familiar with those states of mind and body to such a degree that you won't let a thought slip by your awareness unchecked. You're thinking about what you're thinking about and you're in that process of change. So, so as you become more familiar with the old self, then the next fundamental question is, what thoughts do I want to fire and wire in my brain and put my attention behind? What behaviors do I want to demonstrate in one day, in one lifetime? And the act of closing your eyes and rehearsing who you're going to be when you open your eyes, planning your behaviors, planning your actions, the research shows now you're beginning to install the neurological hardware in your brain to look like you've already experienced that. You haven't done it, but the brain doesn't know the difference when you're truly present. And if you keep doing it over and over again, the hardware becomes a software program. Now you'll start to automatically act like a happy person. You'll automatically think in more unlimited ways. Well, there's no magic there. You install the circuitry. So you become familiar with a new state of mind. And then, and then the tough part is to teach our bodies emotionally what that future will feel like before it's made manifest. So most people are waiting for their wealth to feel abundance. They're waiting for their health to feel wholeness and gratitude. They're waiting for their new relationship to feel love. You know, that's how we've been conditioned. We need something outside of us to take away the emptiness or the lack that we feel inside of us. And, and when people People start understanding that if they can trade the guilt for an elevated emotion and they keep doing it every single day, they're beginning to change their chemistry. They're beginning to change their hormones. They're signaling new genes. If we keep doing that over and over again, it'll begin to become more familiar to you. So the, so the biological mo model of change is unlearning and relearning. It's breaking the habit of the old self and reinventing a new self. It's pruning synaptic connections and sprouting new connections. It's unfiring and unwiring, refiring and rewiring, deprogramming and reprogramming, losing your mind mind, literally, in creating a new one, unmemorizing emotions that are stored in your body from the past, and then reconditioning your body to a new mind and to a new emotion. And so when people do it properly, and they're doing it repetitively, um, the familiarization leads to a new personality. And many times, the disease, the ailment, the pain, the problems, uh, the, the conditions of their life we're connected to the old personality and now they're literally somebody else. And they'll tell you, I'm a different person and the disease exists in the old person. I'm literally someone else. And, and the, bio, the biology that segues to all of that is really new brain circuitry, new brain chemistry, a better uh, strengthening of the immune system. We've measured all this, um, lengthening in telomeres, better gene expression. We, we've mentioned that you can do that in a very short amount of time. So, so I think now people, um, 
I think evidence is the loudest voice. So when people start seeing the evidence of what's possible, then no different than the four minute mile. Everybody starts doing it and, and, and accomplishing. And, and now we're starting to create a change in consciousness. How long would it take to achieve that? Uh, for some people, it takes just a few minutes, you know, every day of doing the work. And uh, it depends on their ability to focus depends on how serious or traumatic their past was. As an example, if you were betrayed or, or shocked from some past event, the stronger the emotion you feel from that experience, the more altered you feel inside of you. And when we feel that change in the emotional state of how we normally feel, the alteration in that state causes the brain to freeze an image and, and take a snapshot, and that's called a memory. So then the higher the quotient emotionally or series of events that have been branded into the brain and body, that usually it's that event that initiates some type of gene uh, downregulation. So in a sense, then the person is either going to shave away that emotional state every day over time, and it may take two weeks, four weeks, two years. It just depends on the person. But the stronger the emotion that they create inside of them, that's greater than the betrayal and they can literally erase their emotional state, then the amplitude of that energy changes their body. And now the stronger the emotion they feel from the inward experience, the more they pay attention to the pictures in their mind. And in a sense, they're beginning to remember their future, or better yet, reorganize brain circuitry and send a new uh, uh, chemical and emotional signature to the body. And if the environment signals the gene, and it does, and the end product of an experience in the environment is an emotion, the person's signaling the gene uh, every day ahead of, ahead of the, uh, the environmental experience. And in a sense, they're beginning to, and genes make proteins, and proteins are responsible for the structure and function of your body. And they're beginning to wear uh, their new self. If people who are sick can do this and recover, how come they're not doing it in hospitals? Why well, isn't this more mainstream? Well, it's not for everybody. No, and um, uh, it's, it's, uh, for many people, it's not easy because you, you have to get beyond yourself. And, and all the research that we've done, we now see that there's a formula to be able to do that. And if you don't know the formula, then it, begin, it becomes difficult because we've seen people try to change uh, by their ego, trying to change their ego, their analytical mind, trying to analyze themselves out of some disturbing emotion. And many times the brain actually becomes more disintegrated. It gets worse. And so if we don't know how to do it, then um, it, it, it leaves a lot of conjecture. But now we're starting to see with the research that we've done is that you can really begin to make measurable changes in people's health. And so we have interest in hospitals now, normally right now, mostly children's hospitals, but, but it's not for everybody because some people want the medical model and I totally get it. But if you look at medicine, uh, medicine is really great for acute conditions, you know, break your arm, have appendicitis, you, you need to see a, an emergency care doctor, but chronic conditions, uh, drugs don't heal chronic conditions. What they do is uh, they're palliative. They sustain chemical balance because, because chronic conditions require a lifestyle change, behaviors, choices, uh, uh, stress management. And, and lifestyle requires follow-up and uh, helping people how to uh, break out of their, their, their state. So I think one day, um, you know, meditation is, you know, you know, 20 some odd years ago, I mean, meditation, you couldn't even say in a, 
in a, in a government office in the United mm. States. Uh, we have a corporate training uh, model that we use for change. And we had to use the word mental rehearsal instead of meditation. Fast forward to today. I mean, meditation is sexy. I mean, neuroscience is cool. I mean, everybody's jumping on it. So, so now you know all the benefits of meditation. You know all these different variances. But now we're, we're working on taking it to a whole nother level. And that level is really helping people. You have three types of stress, physical, chemical, and emotional. Physical stress, you know, trauma, accidents, injuries, chemical stress, viruses, bacteria, blood sugar levels, uh, uh, toxins, and, uh, and then emotional stress, you know, family tragedies, uh, single parenting, second mortgages, all of that knock the brain and body out of balance. Well, if there's three types of stress, then there's three types of balance and get people more physically balanced, you know, whether it's exercise or uh, massage or uh, acupuncture or chiropractic or um, aerobic exercise, yoga. And then, you know, there's chemical balance, you know, make better choices in what you put in your body, use uh, certain um, nutraceuticals to help create more homeostasis and balance. And then, but but really the big one is emotional stress uh, because uh, 75 to 90% of every person that walks into a healthcare facility in the Western world walks in there because of a stress-related disorder. So most stress ends up as psychological stress. So if you can't take care of that, then we can guarantee that in time the condition will re return. So, so the door in then is helping people to self-regulate and that uh, we have great research to show it's possible. So I just think that it'll just take a little time, but I do think that uh, with chronic conditions and hospitals are sooner or later gonna have to address lifestyle changes. You say, you know, to create a new future, you have to create a new personality, but a lot of people who do this kind of work start noticing an unraveling of certain areas of their life. Why does that happen? Well, if you look at it, they really want their life to change, right? And so I think more than anything else that um, the stronger the emotions that we feel with certain problems or people in our life, the more we pay attention to them. And, and where you place your attention is where you place your energy. So you're giving your power away to that problem. And it's kind of interesting because emotions are energy in motion. And so what happens is, is we become bonded uh, energetically to our past, present reality. So when there's a change in awareness, there's a change in consciousness. When there's a change in consciousness, there's a change in energy. So as people start to change their energetic state and they're overcoming their emotions, everything that's no longer a vibrational match or consistent with their new change in energy is going to unravel. And because they're not keeping it in place any longer with their awareness or attention. And so the common human thing to do for most people is to rush back and create order out of it and try to make it known and mm. predictable again, just so that they don't have to feel the discomfort. But if they understand what's happening and without emotionally reacting, keep doing the work, then all of them say the same thing that had to go. Uh, I'm not that person any longer. And all of a sudden they start creating new opportunities, new relationships, new um, careers. It can be quite daunting for a lot of people, you know, maybe like a loss of a partner, a loss of a job or something like that. That's why do you find that a lot of people might go back to their old way? Yeah, they'll do that for a while. And we see that uh, we all do it, right? You go back to the known and then you start realizing everything's predictable and you start realizing um, this isn't for me. I, I'm working so hard on making these changes and you go back to the same emotions, to the same conversations, to the same thought. And something inside of you is telling you, you got to go, you got to move on. So I think that, you know, people waltz back to their past many times just 
because of just because of the way you know leaving the tribe or leaving their culture or leaving your your family or whatever it is uh, is uh, is not conventionally accepted. But but when people spend enough time in making their own changes and they're being defined by that vision of the future, I think sooner or later they they make the changes and. And it doesn't have to be done with pain and suffering. If a person is truly practicing uh, mastering themselves, it'll be done with love and understanding and caring and kindness. And, and I think that's a, a much better way to move through adversity with that kind of rhythm. You talk about matching your vibration and energy to a new future. So what happens, firstly, can you explain what a vibration is? And secondly, what happens when things are at a different vibration to you? Well, I mean, look, we're, Every cell in your body releases light and information. I mean, that's, that's the information biology. And cells communicate really, really well when they're on the same station, we're on the same frequency. Uh, when a cell is emitting coherent, organized light, and the next cell is emitting the same frequency, the same coherent light, they're exchanging information, not through biological positive and negative charges, but through a field of information. And, and the research out of Germany shows that the information that's being exchanged within the cell and between cells is happening faster than the speed of light. So this is a very quantum phenomenon. This isn't a linear. It's very, it's very holism, holistic. It's very connected. So if you put all your cells together, the 70 trillion to 120 trillion cells that make up your body, your body is emitting light and information. And it turns out that what the cells respond to primarily is our emotions and our thoughts. And so when a person's living in survival and living in stress, the cell needs to mobilize energy and use that vital life force and turn it into chemistry. So when you react to a predator, when you react to your coworker, when you react to a thought in your mind that is associated with a problem in your life, you're mobilizing energy and turning it into chemistry. Well, for the short term, that's really great because your body can return back to order. But in the long term, if you keep doing it over and over again, uh, you tap your, vi- your body's vital life force and there's no energy to heal. There's no energy. You're, you're more matter and less energy and you feel separate and heavy from everyone and everything. So, so then is there a way then to restore energy. And absolutely, because once you start opening your heart and you teach people how to self-regulate with elevated emotions, the orderliness that's created in the heart when you do this properly, instead of disorderliness that's created from resentment, impatience, frustration, the heart beats very, very uh, incoherently because it's like stepping on the gas and the brake. So that's what's robbing the body's life force. When you open your heart, heart gets highly organized and it begins to emit a magnetic field. And now that field, that frequency carries information and your, your thoughts begin to change because once energy makes it to the heart, it goes to your brain. So now you have more energy to think. Uh, you have more a different feeling that's taking place in those survival emotions. And in a sense, you're beginning to create a different vibrational field. You begin to create a different frequency. So then... 
when you start elevating your frequency, then you're sending different information out into the field and whatever we broadcast into the field literally is our experiment with destiny. So teaching people how to intentionally do it then gets to be fun because then they can say when there's a vibrational match between me and the future I'm creating and every day they're investing their attention and energy into that future and they're able to stay in that energetic state. In a sense then, that's when the synchronicities, that's when the opportunities. That's when the coincidences begin to happen because all of a sudden now you're no longer doing it matter to matter. Somehow you're connected to the flow. You're connected to this intelligence. And now that the experiences are finding you and that's when it gets to be fun because then you can be the scientist and measure the effects of you at cause in your life. And, and now you believe less that you're the victim of your life you know, someone or something is controlling the way you feel and think to being the creator of your life, which is you change the way you think and feel, broadcast a whole new electromagnetic signature, and now you're more the creator of your life. So thoughts tend to be electric and feelings tend to be magnetic. And how you think and how you feel broadcasts a signature into the field. And so energy has to make it to the heart for a different consciousness, a different energy. And you can teach people how to do this and do it really well. We have, we have plenty of people that can sustain heart coherence for 45 minutes to an hour and a half because it's a skill now. And what, what's the value of that? Well, when they notice they're out of balance in their life or they're frustrated, they can excuse themselves and make that change. And they move back into homeostasis. And the resilience of the body has available energy now. To, to, to execute, to heal, to, to create, to, to communicate, to sleep, whatever it is. In Becoming Supernatural, you talk about the pineal gland and its relation to accessing information that we are not aware of in our normal environment. How does that work? Well, um, for me, I do my best to merge science with ancient mysticism. And um, if you're having profound lucid experiences, if you're having transcendental moments that are more real than the reality you're living in, what is the latent system in the brain that's doing that? And so I started doing this research about 20 years ago because of my own uh, mystical moments to try to be able to really debunk or demystify the process. What's a mystical moment that you've had? <laughs> wow, I have, I have experienced myself in other bodies uh, that, by the way, that in that life, it's, it's happening right now. I've had transcendental moments where I connected to this frequency or this energy that has touched every single cell of my body. And I have had profound interdimensional experiences. Uh, I've had crazy energy move into my brain. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, have a full-on sensory experience without ever using my senses. In other words, the inner world in my mind becomes more real than the outer world I've ever experienced. And, and there's a very, very strong reorganization that takes place in the brain and a very different signal that goes to the body. And so... I, I wanted to understand what the process was. And I found researchers that were able to show that there are tiny little crystals in the pineal gland, calcite crystal, crystals, calcium carbonate crystals that are rhomb, rhombohedron in shape, and they're stacked on top of each other. And those crystals actually act as a radio receiver. So when you and I are just hanging out here talking, 
the wavelength of visible light uh, is causing a signal to go to the pineal gland, and the pineal gland is beginning to make a neurotransmitter called serotonin. When there's a lack of light or the inhibition of light, and all of a sudden the stimulation changes, and the pineal gland takes serotonin and immediately makes it into melatonin. So serotonin is the daytime neurotransmitter, and melatonin is the nighttime neurotransmitter. And it's a function of the wavelength of light. And we create what's called a circadian rhythm. You sleep at night, you stay up during the day, and as long as you're in the same environment, your body gets uh, uh, into this cycle, into this rhythm. Well, when you close your eyes and you learn how to activate the pineal gland, the pineal gland acts like a transducer. And a transducer is like a radio or a TV antenna. It's taking frequencies that you can't see in the air and turning into meaningful imagery. So when the pineal gland is switched on with your eyes closed and it becomes activated, those crystals begin to shimmer and vibrate. And it's the vibration and the shimmering of those crystals when you teach a person to suppress their neocortex, their, the memory bank of the known identity or personality, and you regulate brain waves, and then you suppress that thinking brain when you move into low-level alpha and theta brainwave patterns, and you now know how to use your autonomic nervous system to tune in the frequencies. When you do this really well, and you can get good at this, we see this, you're going to pick up a frequency that's faster than the wavelength of light, and that's called the quantum, e equals mc squared. Einstein said anything that's material that travels the speed of light is going to turn into energy, it's going to disappear. So the ceiling of this reality uh, is light. So anything beyond it is a whole different world. It's called the quantum, where there's a connectedness. So when you begin to pick up frequencies that are faster than the speed of light, and the pineal gland, we have our brain scans to prove this, the pineal gland then acts as a radio receiver. And it's the very small little antenna that connects the physics of the frequency with the biology of our brain and body. Wow. And now all of a sudden the pineal gland picks up a frequency and that frequency is carrying information. And all of a sudden that new stream of consciousness causes melatonin to get an upgrade. So now your melatonin already causes you to dream, but now you're going to really dream, lucid dream. Melatonin is already an antioxidant. Now you're going to create more powerful antioxidants, which are anti-disease agents, anti-aging, anti-cancer, anti-heart disease, anti-stroke, anti-neurodegenerative, anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial. Melatonin already relaxes you, and now you're going to create a benzodiazepine, which is it's going to literally shut down the survival centers in the amygdala in your brain. Now you move out of survival, and as a result the body moves into stasis. The very same chemical that's found in hibernating animals. No sex drive, no appetite, no preoccupation with the outer environment. In a sense now, the body's ready to have a dream. The body's in, in, a, in the present moment. And uh, uh, melatonin uh, gets an upgrade and all of a sudden you get a very high amplitudes of energy in the brain, just like an electric eel, the same chemical. So now the nervous system switches on and it switches on and now... What the person is experiencing between their ears is very, very lucid, very, very heightened. And it's that transcendental moment uh, that allows them to begin to understand the mystery of the self or learning the part of the self that is not the known, the unknown. And, and, and transcendentalism is all about overcoming the self to have an experience. In other words, when you're inside the jar, you can't read the label. When you're outside the jar, you can really see the way things really are. And so we use this pineal gland activation technique because people really have a really profound experiences. And, and everything from 
visitations from their uh, deceased relatives uh, all the way to uh, experiencing a part of themselves that's living in a whole nother reality and they're a whole nother body. And they see the relevance between that life and this life and all the people in it. And you all of a sudden realize you're not a linear being <laughs> living a linear life, that we're dimensional beings living a dimensional life. And I think more and more people uh, really have a thirst uh, for that transcendental moment because uh, you can never go back to being the same person again after that. How has it affected you? Well, um, gosh, um, in so many ways. First of all, there's the science aspect of it because our, our brain research literally validates this, this theory. So I'm super happy now, number one. Number two, we can induce that state, which makes it even more fun. And number three, we can actually predict when we're looking at a, a, a brain scan in real time, if the person's going to have that moment, we can actually see that there are certain indicators in the brain. So we've kind of demystified that process. We can induce it. And then when you see it, it's so outside of range. The amount of energy in the brain is so far outside of normal, not a little bit out of normal, not a lot out of normal, not like a super lot out of normal. We're talking about supernatural outside of normal. Uh, then the research validates that, wow, something's going on with that person. And when you say to them, what, what, what just happened to you? And they tell this, the most beautiful story. And you can see that it was real to them. They're emotional. It, it changes them forever. And sometimes the side effect of this energy coursing through their nervous system is an instantaneous healing because they get a really? biological upgrade. So I'm happy about that. And then with my own personal journey, um, I, I, I love the mystical. Uh, that's my, my passion. Uh, so I make time in my life uh, for it. And um, every time that I have one of these transcendental moments, Sarah, I, I come back to Joe Dispenza and the thought that I have is I got this all wrong. Like some layer, some illusion, some veil, uh, some conditioning becomes list, lifted and I kind of see things really more the way they really are. And, and, and I think we don't see things how they are. I think we see things uh, how they are. I think we see things how we are. And, and so a broader spectrum of the way you perceive the world uh, is added to your brain because your brain now has a circuitry to perceive what's always existed, uh, but we didn't have the circuitry to, to, to perceive it or understand it. So if you look at the spectrum of visible light on the, on the um, electromagnetic spectrum, visible light is less than 1% of the whole entire spectrum. So we're, we're perceiving a very limited portion of reality. So, so the only way you're going to perceive more reality is not from anything outside of you. It's the inward experience that begins to reshape and remold the brain. And all of a sudden now, you're going to begin to view things from a different level of mind. You mentioned to me earlier that you're bringing out a children's meditation. What is an easy and fun way to get kids involved in this kind of work? Well, kids are naturally dreamers. Uh, it, up until the time they're seven, all the way up till 12 years old, their brainwaves are in that perfect state. First six years of their life, they're completely, I mean completely in their subconscious mind because their brain waves are in delta and theta. And theta is a hypnotic state and, and there's no filter. There's no coding. Uh, uh, it, there's just an open door. 
And so whatever you tell your child, big boys don't cry, little girls should be seen and not heard. You're like me, you're not very good at math. Money is the root of all evil. Whatever it is, mm. parents tell them. That goes in unedited. It goes right into the subconscious and that begins to lay down the foundation of the beliefs of the child when they get older. About six, seven years old to around 12, their brainwaves move into alpha. That's the imaginary world. That's why you can tell your daughter to act like a bunny rabbit. It's at nine in the morning and at 12 in the afternoon, she's still a bunny rabbit because she's in that world, in the imaginary world. So, so children have a vivid imagination. And so programming them before they go to sleep, I did it with my kids, are just, it's just a super important time because they are highly suggestible to information. And suggestibility is your ability to accept, believe, and surrender to information without analyzing it. As adults, we got to get beyond our analytical mind be able to regulate our brainwaves to get in that state a child's in to be able to imagine. And it takes uh, an uncluttering process. So, so when you got a child in that state, then you want to lay down the foundations of how to be more emotionally intelligent, how to have greater self-esteem, how to self-regulate, how to pay attention to certain thoughts, uh, how to manage their attention and their energy. So, so we created this, well, we just got thousands and thousands of emails asking for something. So, I created this meditation. It's the first one of many we'll do. It's called, the first one we did was called The Land Where Thoughts Are Things. And we take them on this journey and, uh, and we've, we've piloted it with a lot of young kids, even four-year-olds. And they ask to do the meditation with their, their parents quite a bit. So, So it's really fun to see. When kids become upset, frustrated, or angry, how do we get them out of those negative emotions so that they don't become hardwired? Well, the first thing to do is demonstrate it to them. Uh, I think the fastest path to enlightenment is parenting. And I think you really respect your parents when you're raising your own kids because you realize that there's a lot of things you don't know. And, you know, my theory with kids, and I've raised three of them, is is, um, never try to reason with your child when they're emotional. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. Do you want to be reasoned with when you're emotional? You're going to be left alone. And so if you try to force information into their nervous system, there's no new information that will be entering their nervous system that's not consistent with the emotion. So if you yell back at them, stop being an emotional basket case, and they have mirror neurons, which are empathy neurons, they model behavior. So they're going to pay attention to more how you're acting than what you're saying. Then you're reinforcing forcing that emotional reaction. So, so a lot of times with children, when they're having their emotional reaction, you hold them, you hug them, you let them feel love, you let them feel nurtured. I would stop everything that I was doing and turn and observe one of my kids, like just look at them and they would become aware of themselves and they would become aware that someone or something was observing them. Now, what's the relevance of this? Well, when you put your child to bed and you get in bed and you say, hey, you know, God, I was, I'm working on, I had a tough day today. I'm working on my frustration or my impatience. And you start talking about your own journey. I swear 100% of the time after you open your heart and be totally transparent, your child will remember their moment in their day because you really? were observing them. And they will say, I lost my patience with Paris, my best friend. And I say, yeah, I know. I saw you. Of course she knows I saw her. And then I say, well, I don't really care what happened. What I care about is if it happened again, how would you do it differently? And then they kind of give their best. And of course there's limitations. And with your wisdom, 
well, if you do this, then this would probably happen. So let's think about a better way we could do it. And between the two of you, you build a model an understanding of what they would do if it happened again. And then you say, while they're laying there, so tell me how you would do it. Now, this is mental rehearsal. Mm. They begin to repeat it. If they can repeat it, they're wiring it in their brain. So now you're laying down the very uh, structure in the brain, priming the brain for the behavior. So then after that, and they can repeat it perfectly and you repeat it with them, then you put them to bed and allegory is a great way to reinforce anything. Tell them a story of a little girl that lived in a magical land with castles and dragons and she was working on this particular thing and you go through the whole story and at the end they'll say, was that me? I don't know, was it? And then all of a sudden I watched my kids in moments, you know, all of them, all three of them, I watched them in moments pause. That pause is so important because if it's stimulus response, there's no emotional intelligence. If there's stimulus pause choice, then they're not going to live by those same emotions for a long period of time. Because if they do, it becomes a mood, it becomes a temperament, and ultimately becomes their personality trait. And you want to be able to teach them how to shorten their emotional reactions. And, and so you can do something as simple as observe, observation. You can do something as simple as holding. And at other times, it's just to, just to change everything. I had huge trampolines uh, on my ranch. Mm. And I would just open the door. I'd look at them. I'd look at the trampoline, I'd look at them again, and I'd look at the trampoline, and I'd say, you got to go. And so they'd jump on the trampoline for five minutes, literally, and forget forget everything. They just forget the emotion. That's That's resilience. That's the kind of things that I think make the biggest impression uh, for children, because now they're realizing that emotions are just transient, and, th- and that's the key. What are you most grateful for? God, I'm grateful for life. I mean, I'm grateful for the life that I have. I'm grateful for my staff and uh, the people who support what I do, uh, my, my team. Uh, I'm grateful for um, the community of people that do this work. And uh, every day, you know, we get another testimonial, another story of someone who healed themselves in some way or someone who had a really profound experience or breakthrough or transformation. And, and, I, and I don't know, I think for me being part of human transformation, there aren't many things that, that uh, really move me more. And, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful for my health. I'm super grateful for my kids. I'm super grateful for my friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just a really uh, simple person uh, that loves life. And, uh, and as long as I have the opportunity personally uh, to, uh, to practice what I preach, uh, I'm a happy guy. Do you look back on your life with any regrets? I don't, really. I don't. I really don't. Um, I think we regret life uh, either when our life isn't working presently or because our life isn't working presently, we react emotionally. And emotions are just chemical residue from the past. So if you feel that emotion, your brain is going to connect to the incidents of the past and you're going to view it from that same level of consciousness, that same level of awareness, and same level of energy. And you're going to feel bad. But when your life is working and you're creating, uh, and you could have numerous betrayals, you could have abuse, you could have traumas, you could have all those kind of things. And we've seen this with so many people that they reach a point where they, their life starts working and they start creating miracles and they start healing. And they look back at their past and they don't want to change a darn mm-hmm. thing in their past because all of those things brought them to the present moment. That's the moment the past no longer exists and that's liberation and that's freedom. So I think that, I think we use regret 
uh, in a way when our life isn't working. So did I make mistakes? Lots of them. Uh, did I forgive myself for them? Yeah. Did it take me a little bit? Absolutely. But you know, I learned from my mistakes. And I think that uh, when you do and you face the adversity and the challenges in your life and you see them instead of as a victim, but as an opportunity to grow you know, in some way, by executing with a greater level of awareness from your heart, whatever. Um, I think the evolution of that then makes all of the experiences worth it. And, and I want to reach a point in my life where I can say that I had a great life, I had a really great life, and that I contributed, that I made a difference, that I left something for other people to use. And and I'm, I'm personally just a very mission-driven person. I get out of bed in the morning because uh, I want to make a difference. Do you pray? I don't. I pray, I think, I think living life is the living prayer. I, I believe that my prayer is living life. I don't pray in the conventional sense because most people are praying, they're holding a perfect intention of what they want, but they're feeling lack and emptiness and they're literally saying, when this thing happens, then I'll be relieved. But so their, so their emotional state is in separate, separate from their thoughts. And that's why a lot of times it doesn't work. And there's some research to show that, that it doesn't work if you could have the clearest intention it has no effect on, on anything. They took out three vials of DNA and they, they had people that were expert prayers and healers put all of their intent in this DNA winding or unwinding, doing it over and over again. The end of the experiment, the, the DNA never changed. And they said, okay, create an elevated emotion like gratitude or love or kindness or care and, and radiate that frequency uh, into the DNA. And they were able to do that and the elevated emotion did nothing. But when they said to them, focus on the DNA unwinding and then get in touch with a feeling as if it already unwound. Get, be grateful that it unwound before it happened. Well, a high percentage, almost a quarter of the DNA unwound at a remote location. So in a sense then prayer should be, I mean, we don't pray in our work to have our prayers answered. We get up as if they're already answered. And when you're feeling the emotion as if it's already been done, you won't be looking for if it's, if it's gonna happen. You feel like it's already happened. And that's a very strong vibration. That's a very strong match. So people come back to their senses. They see their prayers don't, aren't answered. They go back to lack and separation. You gotta be the living prayer. And you got to be able to sustain that for an extended period of time. You have research on, on violence and crime, um, rates dropping during uh, mass gatherings of meditation. After the meditators leave in a very short amount of time, the crime rates and the, and the violence return back to the same level. So it's not enough to just think it. You got to demonstrate it. You, you got to give people permission uh, to do it. And you, you can't say peace, 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 and then be at war with your coworker. I mean, you got, that's the prayer right there. Mm. You got to be able to demonstrate loving kindness, care, compassion, um, empathy, all of those things, uh, of forgiveness, whatever it is. Now that's the living prayer. And who benefits from that? You do, because if you're holding the grudge, if you're holding the emotion, then you're literally using your life force. You're giving your life to another person or thing. And that could be an energy for you to heal. And nobody's worth that. What is a life of greatness to you? Oh, um, I think um, at the end of your life, you, I think if you can see that you left a trail uh, that uh, helped people in some way or made a difference, and, um, you know, you were honest and transparent and giving and kind in the face of uh, hostility and anger, and you show compassion. That's, I think that's a, a great, uh, a great life. Dr. Joe Dispenza, the world shines brighter with you in it. Aww. Thank you. Thank you. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.